Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, September 6, 2022, we, we have a talk with authors webinar to discuss classified, the untold story of racial classification in America by Professor David Bernstein. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note, please note that all expressions of opinions are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have an interview with Professor Bernstein, led by Corey Liu, whom I will introduce very briefly. Corey Liu is a partner at the Ashcroft Law Firm. He previously served as Assistant General Counsel to Texas Governor Greg Abbott and clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth and Sixth Circuit. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School and the University of Chicago. After our speakers give their remarks, we'll turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Corey, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm pleased and delighted to be joined by Professor David Bernstein. Uh, he's a university professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University and the author of the new book, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, which came out just this summer. So I'd love to hear about this book. And uh, Professor Bernstein, can you maybe just give us an introduction? What's this book about and uh, why should people read it? Sure. So we all know that when we apply for a job or for college or for a mortgage or for a lot of other things, uh, there are boxes to check, right, to say whether you're white or Asian American or Hispanic or black or so forth. And uh, most people think, well, this is just a matter of self-identification. Uh, the institutions that are providing these boxes are sort of coming up with these uh, boxes on their own. But it turns out, in fact, something that frankly I didn't know, and I think the vast majority people don't know that the racial classifications that we all live with day to day are actually the product of uh, a government rule, statistical directive number 15, that the Office of Management and Budget promulgated in 1977. And the reason they did it was because uh, with the passage of civil rights laws in the 60s and an increase in social science and other research uh, from the government on different ethnic groups, they wanted to be able to keep track of you know, civil rights um, compliance and how different groups are doing in the educational system. And they found that different government agencies were using different definitions. So for what we now call the Hispanic classification, uh, there were some agencies that were using Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, some Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and Cubans. Some use Spanish-speaking Americans, some use Spanish-speaking households, some use Spanish surnames. So the data was apples and oranges. So they just decided uh, on originally Cap Weinberger, who was head of uh, Hugh during uh, the Nixon administration, decided, okay, we need to regularize these statistics uh, and let's come up with some definitions. And they're only supposed to be used for statistical purposes. So no one really paid that much attention. They got sort of an informal committee with subcommittees to figure out 
what the different groups should be called and how they should be defined. And those became the official definitions. And we live with these with very minor changes today. Uh, but of course, as we all know, these do not stay restricted to government statistical record keeping purposes. They spread to affirmative action. They spread to even government mandated research rules that you have to have a certain number of these different groups. And the groups are kind of arbitrary and inconsistent with each other. Some are based on national origin. Some are based on racial origin. Some are based on community affiliation. Uh, like Asian American classification uh, is not really internally coherent, for example. It includes everyone uh, from people from Pakistan to people from the Philippines, people who have nothing in common in the way they look, in their religion, in their culture. Uh, they don't consider themselves Asian American, if you ask them. So I thought it'd be interesting both to look at how these classifications arose, how they're defined, and also how they're enforced, because I had the suspicion that despite there being nothing really the law review literature about this, that because these could be a valuable attribute if you're applying for government contracts or for university missions, that there must be some cases out there in which the government says, hey, we don't think you're really Hispanic or you don't think, we don't think you're really black, prove it. So I did some research and I found a few dozen cases in which uh, ethnicity was challenged by the government, usually involving Hispanics, but also involving other groups. And I decided, I you know, I wrote first a law review article about this in the Southern California Law Review. I think you know, this is an interesting enough topic and it's sufficiently obscure in the actual literature that I should write a book about this. So the book, it really is about the history of racial classifications, again, how they came to be the way they are, how they're defined, how they're enforced, how they've spread to all aspects of society, and of course, in the end, what we should do about them. So can you talk a little bit about the research you did? I know you talk about the statistical directive, sort of how did you go about starting and conducting your research and, and finding out all this information? Well, actually, I start off, uh, as law professors often do, by hiring a research assistant. And my original plan, as I recall, was to talk about the inconsistencies in the way different federal agencies and different states um, describe or de or define these different groups. Because uh, I was aware of at least one case in New York, for example, where Hispanic in New York does not include Spanish speakers and Hispanic for federal purposes, uh, sorry, Spanish immigrants and their descendants and Hispanic in uh, federal law does. And someone in New York sued and said, this violates equal protection. It's irrational for the federal government to consider me Hispanic for affirmative action purposes for government contracts, but for the state of New York not to. Uh, and and the Second Circuit said it's okay, but the real issue was, huh, that's interesting, there's a different definition. And I thought there, and I also knew the Department of Transportation, I somehow found out, uh, considers Portuguese and Brazilians to be Hispanics, whereas other government agencies don't. So I thought it was gonna turn out to be an exploration of all the different definitions we have of these different groups. Uh, and I do have some of that in the book and in the original law review article, but then it turned out that I discovered as I did my research that statistical directive number 15 really actually create uniform classifications that are used almost entirely throughout the federal government. And it's only the occasional agency like the Department of Transportation uh, that somehow demures from those. So it actually then became, well, that's weird that we have this one group was one classification. How come no one ever talks about it? I, I actually did a search in Westlaw. There's like, I don't know, six or seven citations of statistical directive number 15. So it may be the most influential uh, government rule that you've never heard of. Uh, it affects so much of day to day life. And of course, um, one thing that also struck me as well, why, you know, there are some white people, if they happen to have Spanish speaking ancestry, who are defined as minority groups. What about other groups like 
Italian Americans or Polish Americans or Greek Americans or Jewish Americans or Armenian Americans, did they, were they ever considered minority groups? Why do we decide that it's only uh, the specific groups that we had? So I also have a couple of chapters devoted to what we now consider to be white groups and controversy over whether they should be included. I guess the most pertinent one today is Arab and Iranian Americans because they have successfully lobbied the Biden administration to at least explore recommending that they be classified not as white as they generally are today, but instead as part of a new Middle Eastern and North African classification. So what I'm hearing you say is before this directive came out, different agencies had different categories and it was possibly consistent or, or just different. And then even today, like you're describing now, uh, these categories are evolving. Different groups are speaking out and trying to argue for different reclassifications. So how did these in this process of trying to come up with a uniform set of categories uh, what was that like and how was that i mean was this anthropological research or, or science or how did they end up settling these uh you know different versions of, of how different people were classified i mean really to put it bluntly it was almost entirely arbitrary but let me go i'll get to that in a minute let me just go back a little bit in history so the federal government the only time the federal government really ever classified anybody uh, was for two purposes, immigration because of the Asian Exclusion Act, which prohibited uh, people defined as Asian from uh, getting into the United States. But even there, it wasn't really defined. The Supreme Court ultimately had to decide who uh, was on the right side or the wrong side of the border to be this depicted as Asian. And eventually, the western border of Pakistan was sort of chosen as the dividing line, kind of arbitrarily. And then also on the census, uh, it was basically you could be one of the Chinese Japanese, Filipino, Black, uh, American Indian, or white. Those were your choices. But other than that, the federal government didn't classify. But then in the 1950s, uh, President Eisenhower and later President Kennedy uh, established executive orders prohibiting discrimination in contracting. The problem was that you could ask contractors to sign a pledge that they don't discriminate, but how do you know if they're discriminating if you don't know who their employees are? If you know, And obviously, if you have, say, a guy building roads in Georgia and he has no black employees in the 1950s, that would be uh, a sign that you should investigate further. So they created these forms asking employers, uh, which, you know, do you employ uh, these groups and how many? And they started off with blacks and others with others specifically said, for example, Jews and uh, Mexicans. Uh, and eventually Jews were dropped off the list uh, Mexicans were added as sort of Spanish Americans as a euphemism for what was primarily Mexicans, but also Puerto Ricans. Uh, and Asian Americans were added. Uh, there were very few Asian Americans, relatively speaking, in those days. So they were added without really anyone really thinking much about it. And basically, we had the visible minorities, right? Mexicans, here, because here's something, here's something I, don't, I didn't really appreciate as much as I could have in the book. I've come to appreciate more as I think about it. At the time, there was a strong legal and social norm that if you were a progressive liberal employer, you did not ask people about their race or religion. That was considered uh, forbidden and a, an invitation to discrimination. So how do you decide which groups you're going to monitor for discrimination? After all, there's a lot of discrimination against Catholics and Jews, among other, and uh, uh, Italians and so forth. But 
if you can't ask people what their ethnicity is, the only groups that you could actually report on are visible minorities. Oh, that person looks Asian and that person looks Mexican, only darker skinned Mexicans, of course. That person looks like they have African ancestry, so put them as black. So until the 1970s, all these reports were by the employers themselves, not by the employees. So it was the employer just looking over how people look. So that was one reason. The second reason was ideological, uh, which groups we, we think of African-Americans as being the classic group subject to discrimination, which groups are most analogous to them. And it was decided uh, both by the bureaucrats and by African-American civil rights groups that they were sort of accepting that at least some Mexicans uh, and Puerto Ricans and Asians were in, racially analogous to African-Americans that they face race discrimination, but Catholics, Jews, uh, white ethnics and such were not. So um, even as late as the 1970s, though, there were some federal agencies when they kept statistics that did keep an other category. They would count Cajuns in Louisiana or uh, French Canadians in Vermont and New Hampshire and other local minorities that had faced uh, local discrimination. Uh, but when the uh, government decided to regularize its statistics, uh, they, for no particular, they just sort of set up a committee and the committee decided we're not going to have another category. We're not going to consider uh, the white uh, ethnic groups or the religious minorities. Uh, we are going to consider uh, Spanish uh, descended people, Spanish language descended people. Uh, they show how my example of how arbitrary this was, they established a subcommittee to figure out what that classification should be. They got three volunteers from different government agencies, one Puerto Rican American, one Cuban American, one Mexican American to represent the three largest uh, Spanish ancestry groups in the country. And they put them in a room basically for a few months and said, hash out what this group should be called and what the definition should be. And they argued about it. They didn't consult any anthropologists. They didn't control, consult sociologists. They certainly didn't consult geneticists. And there was one woman who I believe was the Puerto Rican representative who was very insistent that they call it Hispanic and trace it to Spain. So because of that, people who are directly ancestral who have ancestral uh, ties to Spain itself, but not Latin America are included. Brazilians are not included. Portuguese are not included. People from Argentina who have Italian or German ancestry are included, uh, but they could have, for example, said you have to have some indigenous ancestry, otherwise you're racially white, but they didn't. So that was the basic uh, thrust of it. It was not done in any coherent way. No one was paying all that much attention. It, you, don't, you go back to the New York Times or Washington Post, there aren't any big stories about government about to create in permanent classifications for all government programs. It was not secret, but it was very much um, not public, not well publicized either. No one really recognized the importance at the time, uh, but we wound up being kind of stuck with these because, uh, as you might expect, as soon as these groups were created, not only did they become uh, the basis for affirmative action programs and so forth, but lobbying groups developed around them. Uh, and you know, the uh, no one, no one's going to say, "Oh, well, you know what? Let's make the Hispanic uh, group smaller." Right, uh, no, because that, that was that, then they would lose constituents. No, let, let's not include people from Africa in the African American classification, because then we lose constituents. So, um, if anything, the groups have expanded. The definitions have expanded slightly, but uh, we've been stuck with these sort of arbitrarily created uh, categories uh, ever since. And in fairness to the people who created the classifications, when OMB published the rules for these new classifications in the Federal Register, they very specifically said these are not anthropological, they're not scientific, and they're not to be used 
for eligibility for any government program. So one of the great ironies is that they immediately were used for eligibility for government affirmative action programs. And, you know, when we get to things like diversity in higher education, universities will say, well, we have to do this because we want diversity in our universities. No one at the time ever thought we are creating classifications for diversity purposes. No one said, no one sat down and said, well, if you want a diverse class with all different perspectives, what groups we should consider and how should we define them? These were really only meant for statistical convenience and especially for anti-discrimination enforcement. For that purpose, they're not ideal, but they're not terrible. But when it gets to things like deciding who gets uh, who gets included for diversity or deciding which groups were excluded historically from the construction market and therefore should get preference for road building contracts, why you would include, say, someone whose ancestors immigrated from uh, who himself or herself immigrated from India seven years ago and became an American citizen, no one has ever been able to explain that. And I don't think anyone reasonably can. So you've already touched on this a little bit, but you know, how exactly are you supposed to, like, what are the scope of these categories? Can you just walk us through you know, the, the current, uh, at least as the government defines them, you know, what are the categories and, and maybe talk about some of the um, you know, challenging or confusing or inconsistent parts of it uh, in terms of how, how these definitions are made. So, you know, so let's say you're, you're filling out the common application, you're applying for college, you see these boxes. What, what is the, the applicant? I mean, a lot of people have talked about being confused by these and not even being sure how to self-identify, but what, what at least is the government's sort of way of defining these, these categories? Sure. So one thing I should mention since you raised it is that while the government does have official definitions, one of the oddities of our whole system is they never provide those definitions when you're actually filling out forms. So I was looking at the common app because my daughter is a high school senior and applying, and it just says, which of these do you identify with? And it just lists the classifications, but doesn't actually tell you how you know whether you're in one of them. So, uh, but to the extent we are following the official definitions, uh, for whites, it's anyone who is descended from people who live in anywhere from Iceland to the Caucasus to the Middle East to North Africa. So anyone from Iceland to Morocco to Turkey to Armenia to Azerbaijan are all uh, classified as white. Uh, for African American or black, as the category is now known, it's anyone who is descended from, quote unquote, one of the black racial groups of Africa. So it does not include Egyptians, does not include whites who are uh, from Africa, does not include Moroccans and so forth. Uh, the, it does include people who immigrate from Nigeria or Kenya or Somalia and, and move to the United States. There was some question in OMB in the 80s when immigration from Africa really picked up. Are these really African-Americans? They're really immigrants. They haven't faced century, you know, centuries of Jim Crow and slavery and so forth. And it was, again, sort of without much public discussion, decided they would be included. The Hispanic classification includes anyone of, quote unquote, Spanish culture or ancestry. So technically, if you have a Spanish-speaking ancestor that you could identify anywhere in the world or even someone who wasn't Spanish-speaking but is from a Spanish-speaking country, like Basque, people of Basque descent from Spain, people of indigenous descent from Mexico, your ancestors don't actually have to have ever spoken Spanish for you to be, at least not as their first language, for you to actually be Hispanic. But if you're descended from any country where Spanish is the uh, general language, then you are considered to be Hispanic. Oddly enough, if you are Hispanic and you move to Asia, your family lives in Asia for 100 years, you never become Asian because Asian is defined racially. If you're Asian and you move to uh, Latin America, your family moves there and then they move to the US, you're both Asian and Hispanic. So that's one of the little oddities of the whole system. Asian is defined as being descended of one of the original groups of Asia. Um, it does include 
three different ethnographic or genetic groups, if you will. Uh, Austronesians, Filipinos are mostly Austronesians. They mostly relate to other Hawaiian, to, uh, to Hawaiians and to uh, the Maori and so forth more than to East Asians. East Asians and people from South Asia who are ethnically diverse themselves, but are generally not are Caucasian and more related to Europeans than they are to East Asians. The original draft of the classification scheme that went into Directive 15 did not include South Asians as Asian. They were mostly being classified as white at the time, but uh, an Asian American group that was quite small at the time uh, lobbied to have it changed at the last minute, and they were successful. No one really, there weren't a lot of, um, in, it was mostly Indians and most, very few people cared one way or the other whether Asian Indians were included, they cared, so they were uh, put into the Asian uh, classification. There's also, originally there was an Asian American Pacific Islander classification. In 1997, one of the few changes was that Asian American Pacific Islander were broken off into two separate categories, and now there's a Hawaiian Native and Asian and um, uh, and uh, Pacific Islander classification that's separate. That came about because Native Hawaiians found that they were having trouble getting into uh, colleges in California because uh, they were considered part of an overrepresented quote unquote group along with other people in the AAPI category. So they said, we don't, we're, that's not fair. We were colonized by, uh, by Americans, white Americans, and we have low socioeconomic indicators on average. Why should we be included with Chinese and Koreans and so forth? We want our own classification. OMB said, you're not big enough to have your own classification. Okay, well, put us with Native Americans and Native Alaskans. Native Americans didn't want them because they didn't want to share the Bureau of Indian Affairs resources with them. So they finally compromised and put them together with Polynesians into this classification. Similarly, by the way, if you are a 100% indigenous Latin American origin person, you are not an, an American Indian or Native American because, again, the classification is limited to um, American and you know, U.S. and Canadian Indians uh, because of lobbying from American Indian groups that don't want to share Native American resources. Um, I think I think I've covered all those. Uh, so the the current controversies, which would be the uh, relevant uh, next question, I guess, were, were again: Should we have a separate Middle East and North African classification? Uh, there is some lobbying for the Biden administration. With the Biden administration, they're going to consider whether they should break up the Asian classification. Most Asian Americans don't consider themselves to be Asian Americans. And again, it's such a broad category that includes people who are so disparate that there's some sense they should be separated. Uh, and finally, there's been talk off and on over the decades of changing Hispanic from an ethnic classification to a racial one. Oh, there's one final point. You're not allowed to check off multiracial. Uh, originally, you could only check one box. So you could be Hispanic or white or Hispanic or black. Nowadays, since 1987, you first check off whether you're Hispanic or not, and then you check off your race. Race. But some Hispanic groups who originally opposed having Hispanic be a racial classification now think it would be advantageous. So they are now lobbying uh, to have the Biden administration change Hispanic to a racial classification. Well, that's fascinating. Um, you know, as an Asian American, according to the government, I've always wondered where do these classifications come from, right? I mean, my, if I talk to my relatives from China and I say, are you of the same race as people in India? <laughs> they would be confused. But it's only in America here that because of you know, the politics and, and sort of, I guess, as you're describing, these arbitrary decisions from bureaucrats that they get lumped together. And uh, it's very interesting to me that actually, like as you were saying, people from India were at some point in time treated as possibly Caucasian. And then um, over time, that evolved. And so that's just uh, very curious 
how these well, all came about. Well, one, one other thing I mentioned about this is that this is ironic and it has some basis, but, you know, so when they had to decide the seventies, what classifications to make, what they really did was recreate the traditional racist classifications that Americans had lived with, you know, 19th and early 20th century. So the Asian classification was defined ultimately the same exact way it was defined under the Asian Exclusion Act as including, for example, people from India, but not including people from the Arab world, which is exactly what the Supreme Court held in the 1910s and 20s. Now you could argue, well, that makes sense because they were discriminated, they were discriminated against as Asians before, so they should be in the same classification. But on the other hand, the classifications themselves had like this racist uh, basis where the government, the Supreme Court, for example, say, well, yeah, Asian Indians are Asian Indians are Caucasians, but they're not white people because people don't think of them that way. So it's weird to recreate that, but it was the most convenient way of doing it, right? We have this traditional racist color scheme that anthropologists came up with in the 20, in the 19th century, yellow for Asia, black for Africa, white for Europe, uh, and, you know, brown for people of partial or full uh, uh, Native American descent in Latin America. And we basically followed that. And it's kind of, and it, you know, if it's only being used for anti, you know, to keep statistics, maybe it wouldn't be so problematic, but it actually affects both people's own self-identity and how other people think of them. And it's a little weird to think that if you think of someone being an Asian American, it's not something that Asian Americans themselves primarily came up with. It's not something that people used on their own. It's not something people even identify with today mostly. It's something that the government kind of imposed on society, uh, again, relying on a, on a longstanding racist classification. Yeah, I was uh, talking to one of my uh, former coworkers about this uh, issue as well. And so he, he's British. And so I asked, you know, over there, how do you guys use the term Asian? And he actually said that over there, Asian typically is more commonly thought of as people from India and then Chinese, or actually, I guess the, the old term would have been Oriental, would have described people from East Asian. So it's interesting how in the U.S. we had one way of talking about it. And then even in Britain, another English speaking country, uh, it was kind of the opposite. And so it just kind of goes to show how arbitrary and culturally defined and ever shifting these labels are. Yeah, so I mean, two two related anecdotes. One is that I was in Hawaii uh, last year, and we went to uh, one of the old plantations, and they had they had each of the ethnic groups that worked on the plantation. I think it was like a pineapple plantation or banana plantation. I don't remember. Had their own little village within the plantation. So there, there wasn't. Not surprisingly, there wasn't an you know Asian village. Or there was the Korean area, the Japanese area, the Chinese area, and also there were a lot of Portuguese laborers. Portuguese area they had their own customs and this and that. And of course. Um, over time, historically in the U.S., uh, you know, Chinese and Japanese, because of the various wars between China and Japan, were not always, uh, um, you know, all that amicable toward each other. And Filipinos didn't think of themselves as being related at all to either group. Uh, but then the other thing that was kind of funny was last year, not two years ago, I guess, during the election season, I was listening to NPR, which I can't stand listening to anymore. Just, but I was, that was sort of the end of my rope with them, but they were, and they had a whole week where they said, we're going to be visiting, uh, we're going to focus on Asian American politics in the 20, 2020 election. And then every day it was like, oh, today we're going to the Chinese 
Chinese American club, uh, Democratic club of San Francisco. And next it'd be the Korean American Republican club of Atlanta. And it was never like, there was no Asian political club because again, these groups, you know, these are different ethnic groups. It's, you know, you wouldn't expect uh, in for the big wave of European immigration for Italians and, you know, and Scandinavian and, uh, um, and Polish immigrants to be like in the same group. You wouldn't say, hey, we're going to go to European Americans uh, uh, to talk about politics. And it's the same thing. I mean, it's sort of uh, racially uh, and ethnically reductionist to take groups that have different cultures, different languages, different histories, often long histories of animosity, at least back in their home countries, and sort of just decree by fiat uh, that they are all part of the same government-created group. And the same is true of whites, for that matter. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say that I got through writing most of the book and was almost done before I said to myself, you know, I've just kind of been assuming that white is a natural group that makes a certain amount of sense. But why is that? Um, what do what does like a Boba Ver Hasid in uh, Brooklyn have in common with a um, uh, Appalachian uh, Scotch Irish person whose family's been in the country for 400 years? And what do they have in common with like a, a recent uh, Irish immigrant uh, working in the high tech industry in Silicon Valley? Right. I mean, we could call them all white, uh, but you know, the, it, it's it's. I think I, I quote somebody else as saying that white is also a sort of government created pseudo race. It's not ethnographically coherent because a geneticist could divide up whites into quite a few different groups, but it's also not uh, ethnographically coherent in thinking that people from Afghanistan and Azerbaijan are just like people from France or England who are just like people from uh, Greece and Crete. Yeah, just another anecdote. Uh, in the sort of ethnic bar associations, there, there's often an Asian American bar association. And I find that sometimes it's more frequently East Asians and Southeast Asians, but there's also some, you know, South Asians, like people from India um, who participate, but there's also South Asian bar associations. <laughs> so you kind of see people sort of end up breaking up into different groups and, and it just kind of illustrates the arbitrariness of Asian as a category that covers really 60% of the world's population. Yeah, so I'm a lawyer, I'm a law professor, so I'm not a sociologist or anthropologist. This was not the main focus, but you know, I did learn a lot about this sort of thing just in researching the book, not all of which made it into the book, because I try to keep my narrative nice and tight and coherent, but not only, so I looked it up at some point, every major university has a separate South Asian student group. And in many universities, especially larger universities have a lot of graduate students, they have the Asian American group, which, which will be mostly East Asians, and they'll have a separate South South Asian group, which will be American-born South Asians, but then the graduate students will have a separate Pakistani and Indian graduate student association, because of course, Pakistanis and Indians, I wouldn't say, it's, you know, maybe saying they hate each other is uh, too much of a, too too strong, but they're obviously two countries that have long-standing uh, religious and national tensions, and they don't think of themselves as being South Asians, they think of themselves as being two completely separate groups. You'll actually have multiple different uh, Asian groups, uh, not just the two. So everything we've talked about, we've started, we've mentioned some about college admissions, but I wonder if we can go a little deeper into that. So um, a lot of these ideas that Professor Bernstein and I are talking about, we had a chance to submit an amicus brief uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. And so maybe can you just describe for the audience a little bit, first of all, what the Supreme Court has said on the consideration of race in college admissions, and then maybe apply some of the findings from your book into you know, what, what are some things the Supreme Court hasn't yet addressed and maybe needs to address in order to provide a satisfactory answer on, on how to address the issue? 
Sure. So the Supreme Court has held that considering race in college admissions is appropriate only for so-called diversity purposes. Uh, the original thought in Bakke versus California, uh, Justice Powell's opinion as the fifth vote in that case was sort of the controlling opinion, was they could use race for diversity purposes in order to sort of, just like you'd want to have college you know, athletes to fill the football team and musicians for the uh, musical ensembles, that to add to the college experience, it's good to have a diverse student population. That was accepted and elaborated upon in the Grutter opinion and also suggested that we want to have sort of people representing different groups so that we could uh, develop leaders uh, from uh, different groups. But uh, the one thing, and you know, that, that itself is of course at issue, uh, whether the Supreme Court should stick to that. Uh, and I think, you know, there's some issues with that rationale on a variety of grounds, including the possibility that you're stereotyping people as all having the same views because they're from the same group, that uh, schools are really using implicit quotas, even though they even though they claim to only be using it for diversity purposes, uh, and also that um, it's not really it's not really clear that universe like for example law schools use uh, race, but law schools don't really usually care about diversity, right? I mean your LSA and GPA are the vast majority of what they consider. They don't really care if you're an oboe player or a, or a football star or whatever. So uh, even if undergraduate universities are permitted to do this. It's not really clear why it applies to grad school. But all that said, one thing that really hasn't ever come up in the Supreme Court, except in occasional dicta or questions at oral argument, have never really been explored in the opinions in any meaningful way, is why these classifications. Um, for example, the Supreme Court for reasons that I could go into, uh, historical reasons refers to his the way the Department of Education counted Hispanic for a long time, counts Hispanicity as a race. But in fact, under government, under the laws that the universities are actually applying, uh, the Office of Civil Rights uses Directive 15 now, uh, Hispanic is an ethnicity. So why do we care about Hispanic ethnicity, but not any other ethnicity, if what we care about is diversity? Uh, an example I've given is, you know, um, you may, I think we have this in our brief. Uh, you have already 2,000 Mexican Americans being admitted to the University of Texas. You have two last students who are applying. One of them who you're deciding between. One of them would be your 2,001st Mexican American, and the other would be your 5,000th white student, but the only Turkmen from Turkmenistan in the entire class, maybe the only Turkmen who's ever attended University of Texas. Now, if you're just looking at ethnic diversity, clearly the first Turkmen would actually add more diversity than the 2001st uh, Mexican American, but the Turkmen is just put into the white classification uh, and therefore isn't adding diversity at all. Similarly, when we talk about Asians, you know, I hate the term overrepresentation because I don't think there's such a thing, but if you know, quote unquote, overrepresentation of Asian Americans, Asian American, again, is a covers a wide range of groups. Some groups like Asian Indians, like Chinese immigrants are quote unquote statistically overrepresented in colleges, but some don't do very well in higher education, statistically speaking, like Hmong refugees or Burmese immigrants to the United States. So once again, you might be the first Burmese or the first Hmong to be applying to University of, Mich of, uh, of Texas, but they'll say, oh no, you're Asian, so you don't count. You just slumped in with the Asian group. And you know, people from those groups can say, wait a second, but 
I don't talk think of myself as Asian. There's no such thing as generic Asians. I am a Hmong refugee. My grandparents came here in 75 penniless. I have nothing to do with, you know, some Asian Indian who maybe had, you know, graduated from a nice university in India and came to Silicon Valley to work here and their kids now applying. Why should I be lumped in ethnically with a group that I don't really feel I have anything in common with? Uh, and, they, and I think they have a point. If diversity is the true uh, value, why are we just using statistical classifications created for entirely different purposes that no university, as far as I'm aware, not a single university in any of the litigation or ever in its history has sat down and said, okay, we want diversity. Let's pretend that government mandated classifications don't exist. If we really wanted a, an ethnically diverse class, how will we define that? What groups will we look to and how will we recruit them? Instead, they have just naively or, or purposefully or whatever you want or willfully just taken statistical classifications that were not invented for that purpose, that were not even considered for that purpose, and applied them as if they are the be all and all. And, you know, if you think about it, if the standard is supposed to be strict scrutiny, the standard is strict scrutiny, they're supposed to be narrowly tailored classifications. If none of the universities in question, whether it be Harvard or anybody else, have ever sat down and thought, are these really the proper classifications for ethnic diversity, or are we just using some statistical device that was invented for other reasons, I don't see how it could pass even rational basis scrutiny, much less strict scrutiny. Yeah, going back to looking at the different court opinions, you know, I've as just trying to understand what our universities are doing and what the courts are saying about it. I've followed the pleadings in all these different cases, and the only reference I've seen to Asians have been in in the Fisher litigation, the district court at the Western District of Texas, Judge Sparks, his only mention is Asians are overrepresented. I mean, italicized is overrepresented, and he just leaves it at that. He doesn't explain why the Asian what the Asian category even means, why it's appropriate, and how that could be a basis for treating you know, different students differently based on their race. Um, and then uh, in the second Fisher case, Justice Alito cites an amicus brief um, that discusses uh, experience of Asian Americans, and he, he raises this concern of, of both lumping everyone together and then. Um, you know, what, whether it's appropriate to be imposing race-based costs on or ostensibly a, a racial minority group. Um, another issue that we address in our amicus brief is this issue of self-identification and, you know, how do universities determine what an applicant's race is? Pretty much it's just based on self-identification, like you said, uh, on the common application. And actually, there's an exchange from the first uh, Fisher oral argument where Chief Justice Roberts asks the lawyer for the University of Texas, do you do anything to verify the self-identified race of the applicants? And the lawyer says, no, uh, I don't think Harvard does it. I don't think any school does that. So can you say a little bit more about what implications that might have for this strict scrutiny, narrow tailoring issue? Well, it just leaves a lot of additional arbitrariness in the process, right? Because uh, there are, Every time I talk about this book, just about, I get some story about someone somebody knows who was born in South Africa or Tanzania or Egypt, but who is Caucasian, who put down African-American and no one uh, generally checks, like like they said. I don't know, you know, I can't verify these. I know of at least one verified story like that, but I can't, I can't verify all these stories, but you hear it so often that it must occasionally happen. But uh, but I think people are less likely to claim they're black, but we know there's a tremendous amount of exaggeration and fraud with regard to Native American ancestry. And we point out in the brief, and it's in the book also, that um, someone did a study in the 19, uh, in the 2000, early 2000s, and they found that X number of people put down they were Native American when they were 
matriculating to law school. And then 10 years later, only one-tenth of people who graduated in that class who were lawyers in the census said that they were Native American. Now, of course, not everyone who goes to law school becomes a lawyer, but whatever. Obviously, if 10 times as many people are saying they're Native American on their applications who are self-identified as such on the census, that's a lot of people who don't really think of themselves as Native American in day-to-day life who are putting it down for a uh, uh, advantage in admissions. Uh, this raises the issue of what um, uh, another law professor calls identity entrepreneurs, right? People who uh, sometimes fraudulently, but oftentimes more like in an exaggerated manner, uh, claim an ethnicity that doesn't really affect their day-to-day life. And it may not be they're violating any rules. Like if you, like I said, it, you know, the definition of Hispanic is that if you have uh, any if you are of Spanish culture or ancestry. So there's an actual case in the um, Small Business Administration bureaucracy among um, a ministry of law judges where someone who didn't have a Spanish sounding name, didn't speak Spanish, didn't claim any ties with the Spanish speaking community said, well, my ancestors were Sephardic Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492. Uh, I'm Hispanic. And the judge said, yeah, you are. Uh, first, they said no, but on appeal, they said, look, it says Spanish ancestry. So not everyone who has like a Mexican great great grandfather or uh, has a Sephardic Jewish ancestor or who has um, other sort of vague uh, Spanish language ancestry or Spanish nation national ancestry will claim Hispanic, but they can. So one person who has a great grandfather who's Mexican, I mean, Mitt Romney could have claimed it based on the fact that his uh, father, I believe, was born in Mexico after a bunch of Mormons uh, fled to Mexico. And, you know, there are people whose ancestors, for example, fled Nazi Germany uh, to Cuba uh, in 1938, then came to the U.S. when Castro uh, took power. So they're in Latin America for 23 years or so, and they can justifiably claim that they, if their father or grandfather was born in Cuba, that they are of Spanish ancestry, you know, Spanish culture or ancestry. So there's a lot of wiggle room in how people define themselves, and no one does check. And for that matter, if you look at the common application or when you check employment boxes, no one tells you how to determine whether you identify as one of these groups or not. So. Um, uh, there's room for exaggeration. There's also room for people just to make mistakes. You can legitimately think it says African-American doesn't define it. You might think that if you were born in Africa, but you happen to be Caucasian, that you're African-American. There's also people's choices that they make. We point down the brief that people aren't trying to game the system. You might have two brothers who have one Chinese parent and one Mexican parent, and one of them feels much more attached to the Chinese side of their heritage and their family. One feels more attached to maybe their Mexican uh, grandmother. So one puts down an Asian, the other puts down Hispanic, you actually put down both because of Hispanic ethnicity, but in any event, one could put down Asian, one could put down Hispanic, and they have the exact same background, they may look almost exactly alike, but one gets an admissions preference from Harvard, and the other gets an admissions, uh, at least according to you know, the plaintiffs, and I think they're right, one actually gets discriminated against in admissions. So, so just there are just layers, there's the arbitrary classification themselves, there are how they're arbitrarily defined, and there are how people sort of arbitrarily uh, self-identify and in fact, there's data showing that if you ask people, what is your ethnicity, that uh, and you ask them again a year later, people like a third of people change, not necessarily the classifications used on in, in affirmative action. For the census also, people change their race pretty frequently every decade, depending on how they're feeling about their identity at the moment. So um, to a large extent, there's a there's racial essentialism built into our classification system. We just assume that we know who's black, who's white, who's Asian, and it's not controversial. And this, in fairness, made a certain amount of sense in 
the early 1970s. Circa 1972, Mexican-Americans were considered to be white before we decided to have a Hispanic classification. So we had 90 years, almost 90% of the population was white, about 12% was black, and then we had less than 1% Asian-American and less than 1% um, who were Native American. A lot of the Native Americans were a mixed race in any event. So basically we had a black white binary and given the one drop rule historically and given the social disadvantages of being African-American, we thought we could tell like, you know, no one's gonna identify who's as African-American if they're not, and everyone knows who's African-American and who's white anyway, but no one anticipated and then no one, no one expected at the time was the both the massive wave of immigration we've had from uh, Latin America and Asia since then, such that now, uh, Asians and Hispanics together are more than twice, are more than double uh, how many African Americans there are, uh, and also the huge rate of intermarriage that we have, such that there are many millions of Americans and growing every day who have mixed ancestry and who could claim different ancestries depending on what they think is beneficial to them in the moment or how they're feeling in the moment. Yeah, well, one of the most uh, heartbreaking facts that sort of came out of this students for fair admissions versus Harvard case was the experience of Asian Americans. And um, it, in the merits amicus brief that we did, I, I quoted it, a really heartbreaking article. Um, it was on Slate, and it was actually a, a student who had gotten into Yale who was Asian, and he reflected on what he did in order to get there. He basically said, look, I tried to make myself look less Asian. I didn't say what my race was. I purposely avoided learning Chinese, even though there's a part of me that wanted to connect with my heritage. But uh, I, I just feared that it would hurt me in the admissions process. I, I tried to avoid looking Asian in as many ways as possible. And ultimately, he concludes that um, he regrets it and even you know, used the word sellout. Um, and so it's really quite tragic that a policy that's supposed to encourage diversity is actually putting students in a position of trying to, in a sense, erase their own race because they think it's going to disadvantage them in the admissions process. Um, yeah. You know, the funny thing is back in the 70s, when we mentioned that Asian Indian, an Asian Indian group was lobbying to be considered Asian because they wanted sort of in on the growing minority uh, um, disadvantaged business programs that that uh, assumed that if you're a member of a minority group, you're disadvantaged. Another Asian Indian group based in Chicago. This one was based in New York. The other group based in Chicago got wind of this. And they said, well, we don't want this. It was too late for them to, they say, you know, what's going to happen is we're already overrepresented among business owners and in higher education and so forth. Indian Americans are doing very well. And white people are going to resent that we're getting preferences. And then other minority groups are going to say, wait, but you're not real. You don't really deserve to get preferences. And in fact, we should limit how many, uh, uh, of you are admitted to college or to government contracts because um, you, there are a certain percentage of slots that are implicitly reserved for minorities and you shouldn't be taking them. You should be reserved for other groups. So we'll, so we'll, we'll, we'll be screwed both ways, basically. And at least in a higher education uh, situation, that's proved uh, to be uh, reasonably prescient uh, that, um, you know, the group that is most, quote unquote, overrepresented in higher education are people of Asian Indian descent. Uh, and to the extent that there are implicit quotas on Indian, on uh, Asians, uh, they are, uh, um, they, uh, then, you know, along with Chinese and other groups, especially Asian Indians, are uh, are are feeling the are get are catching the brunt of it. If they were considered to be white, they would just be in the general white lumping category, and no one would even be paying attention to how many there are. So we talked a fair bit about college admissions. Can we talk about maybe some other areas of the law where 
your ideas and your research, uh, you're hoping that they'll get some more attention and, and be talked about in those areas. And I've talked about contracting and, and employment type uh, issues, but uh, can you talk a little bit about what other applications there might be? So one of the ones that really, I mean, maybe the most distressing thing in the entire book and in all of my research is the way that these classifications have become institutionalized in the scientific and medical professions. And this isn't for scientific reasons. What happened was, and I go through the history in more detail in chapter six, but so I won't do all that right now. But basically, Congress told the FDA and NIH after lobbying from civil rights groups uh, who are concerned that minority members of minority groups weren't being represented in scientific studies, and therefore maybe the studies weren't valid for them that you must include members of minority groups in uh, your studies. Like you, you must require companies you regulate. Uh, that, uh, so any company that gets an NIH grant, any pharmaceutical or biomedical company or medical device company that the FDA regulates, they must have enough uh, members of minority groups in their studies. And the NIH and FDA could have taken this sort of unscientific dictate from the FDA, from Congress is, okay, well, let's, you know, if we have to do this, let's go about this scientifically. Let's figure out on a genetic basis, what groups might actually uh, have different reactions to different drugs. Uh, this would not necessarily correlate at all with our current racial group. So for example, within the white category, there are some groups that are fairly genetically distinct from other white groups, Ashkenazic Jews, uh, because of uh, founders effect in DNA wise, Icelanders, because they were on island isolated from other populations. We know there are groups like this that may have some different issues. Instead, I think for obvious political reasons, which is that no one really wants to gather a bunch of experts and say, what does race or mean in the medical context? They just literally took these classifications, which were specifically stated not to have any scientific basis and impose them on the medical and scientific professions, uh, which has had all sorts of horrible effects, uh, one of which is that it has crowded out actual genetics-based research, which could actually lead to medical advances. Uh, it also delays research, so the Moderna um, COVID vaccine was delayed by a few weeks because the head of NIH, who oddly enough had written elsewhere that race shouldn't be used in medicine, told Moderna, we're not going to improve, approve your vaccine until you get more Hispanics and Blacks in your studies, even though there was absolutely no scientific reason to think an mRNA vaccine will operate any differently in those groups. Now, Hispanic itself is not even a racial classification, has no genetic basis at all. It's You could be 100% uh, European, you could be 100% indigenous, you could be 100% African, uh, you could be even Asian uh, and live in Latin America, you could be any combination of those. So it's like saying American, you have to have enough Americans. What does that mean? So it's completely unscientifically unjustifiable. The Asian classification again includes uh, people from India, people from China, nothing, you know, particularly in common genetically. Uh, and the rationale that is given to the extent one is given uh, is that, is that, well, um, we're afraid that people won't trust the vaccine unless their group is represented. And to me, this is entirely circular. Why does, why would someone of Hispanic descent think that a vaccine won't be valid for him, even though Hispanic isn't a racial group? Well, the government says you have to have Hispanics. There must be a reason, right? I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I am much more genetically distinct from the general American population, most likely than someone who is of mixed uh, Spanish, Italian, uh, indigenous and black uh, origin. But no one tells me that, oh, we must have Ashkenazi Jews in the vaccine study or they're not going to be valid for Ashkenazi Jews. So, and, and there's really no reason to think it would be. So I don't worry about it at all. 
And if we just have benign neglect in this area, there's no reason anyone would worry about it. Uh, and this is now migrating into actual medical practice and into actual rules where some states want to give medical treatment based on race uh, or um, to give vaccines uh, initially based on race. Uh, and we there's all sorts of um, people are asked their race when they uh, go to the to um, uh, their doctor or to the hospital. And I think this creates a lot of problems. Doctors do it for benign reasons. They think, oh, you know, this particular treatment that we think works better than African-Americans. There's really, first of all, very little research supporting this. A lot of it winds up being data dredging. We've tested this drug 30 different ways. It all seems the same, but we have a small statistically significant uh, result for one particular minority group, but that's probably just statistical noise. But um, most important, actually, doctors are not, you know, what does it mean if someone goes to a doctor's office and says, I'm African-American? They could be one quarter African genetically, which means, and three quarters European, which means they'd be more in the white group anyway. They could be Ethiopian, whereas the data we have on African-Americans may be mostly people from West Africa who are distantly related genetically. It's just a big mess. So I call on the book for just eliminating race entirely from medical practice, from scientific studies. It doesn't mean I'm ignorant of the fact that there is some correlation between racial classification and genetics, but if but it's very crude and we're much better off going directly to genetics, which is the actual scientific basis for medical reasons, rather than physiognomy or self-described uh, ethnic background. That's fascinating. Um, I think we have a little bit of time for questions, so I'll go ahead and read some from the chat. And if you'd like to ask a question, feel free to type it in the chat. Uh, the first question, I think Professor Bernstein and I we will kind of address it already a little bit, but I'll go ahead and read it. It says, why do we need definitions? Are we not able to self-identify? Well, there are some challenges that arise if uh, people are allowed to self-identify, right? Kind of, as you mentioned, you know, folks, if you're mixed race, you know, different people who are of the same, I guess you could say genetics or ancestry, um, identifying differently, um, questions of exaggeration, et cetera, um, things like that. Is there anything more you'd like to, to say on that? Yeah, I mean, the one area where I think the government has actually recognized self-identity as a particular problem was in government contracting, where there was massive fraud of people claiming to be Native American, so much so that in 2019, the Department of Transportation, and I think Commerce also issued new rules saying you have to be a tribal member, uh, just so people wouldn't be making it up. Even that is problematic because some tribes have extremely liberal descent rules, such that you know you could be one five thousand something. Cherokee, but be a member of the tribe. Plus, I understand, although this is not a little bit outside my expertise, that you could pay money to certain tribes to become a member. There are certain tribes that exist only, like they get a friendly state legislature to reckon, recognize them as a state-recognized tribe, but they really don't have any true tribal anything. They just exist to in order to get affirmative action. So even when you make rules, uh, it can be problematic. Uh, but one, you know, one possible solution is just let people identify as whatever they want. Don't make any rules and uh, let the ships fall where they may. If everyone decides to classify themselves in uh, ways that undermine these programs, or so be it. Uh, next question uh, has to do with genetic testing that have become you know, much more popular, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, et cetera. Um, do you think this is going to have an impact on uh, these kinds of policies, litigation, court decisions, um, things that we're seeing from government agencies? It's a fascinating question. There's one case from the Ninth Circuit addressing exactly this question where a government contractor uh, took a DNA test and 
found, I don't know how accurate this test was, but no one disputed the test itself, said it was 4%, I believe it was, of African descent. So he looked at the definition and says anyone who is uh, descended from the black race of Africa is African American. So he checked off this box. And here's the crazy part of it. This, uh, there are separate rules for being, separate processes really, for being recognized as a uh, disadvantaged business enterprise or minority business en enterprise for state and federal purposes. The state of Washington recognized him as black for state purposes. He then went through paperwork to apply to be black for federal purposes and the same state officials who are in charge of this uh, for, for the federal government, they, it's complicated, but they do it for the federal government purposes as well. They said, no, we decide you're not black. He's like, well, how can I be black for state purposes and not for federal when we when we're applying the same rule and the answer is that you had two different officials looking over your file and one decided that your dna ancestry combined with your expressed interest in now considering yourself mixed race was sufficient and another one didn't but what happens when lots of people over time discover that they a fairly large percentage of white americans actually do have uh uh, Native American or African or African ancestry, uh, and uh, and also some people have Hispanic ancestry, of course, uh, but don't otherwise think of themselves as Hispanic. What happens when more and more of the people say, "Well, I could check that box," and the answer is, I think if you look at the literal definition of the rules, that um, they are they could be included as long as they self-identify. But the rules are kind of stupid in that way because they're not. This is obviously not who uh, was meant to be included. So I don't know whether judges like the Ninth Circuit, which denied uh, his claim, will just say, well, as, you know, we, we're not going to intervene if agencies don't want to recognize you, whether the rules will change or whether we'll just broadly expand this. I mean, the government contracting, unlike in universities, Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans get exactly the same preference as uh, African-Americans do. So over time, if nothing else happens, even without DNA testing, given the rates of intermarriage in a generation or two, 80 or 90 percent of Americans are going to be able to claim one of the groups anyway by ancestry. So something is actually going to have to give or you know, if everyone's getting a preference, no one's getting a preference. Uh, we have another question here. Um maybe explain a little bit more, but he says, uh, has your views on racism or the lack thereof during the Lochner era changed uh, based on your research? I know Professor Bernstein has also has done some scholarship on uh, the Lochner era and the Lochner Supreme Court case. So I don't know if you have any reflections on uh, that. I don't think my views have changed, although, you know, one, I, I always say the greatest thing about being a professor, a law professor, is I get to find topics I'm interested in and spend my time reading and writing about them. And I learn more. I mean, I wasn't really, I was sort of vaguely aware of the controversies over who counted as Asian or not uh, in the early 20th century, but it wasn't something that I had really investigated before. So I found uh, delving into this more uh, to be extremely interesting. Uh, I found, you know, controversies over Arabs and Persians and, uh, uh uh, people from uh, India, especially light, lighter skinned people from India, who said they were want to be Caucasian. Uh, and they were, they were claiming, you know, Japanese people had sometimes claimed we're Aryans also, and based on some ethnographic evidence. So it's all very, very interesting. Again, you know, my, uh, it, I, I, I just, there's a lot written elsewhere about that stuff. I was originally going to write a book about ethnic classification from the beginning of the Ameri you know, American settlement and, uh, by Westerners until today. But I said, you know what? That's too much. There's a lot written about the other stuff. 
What really hasn't been written about is how these classifications developed in modern times. Uh, so I'm just going to focus on that. But I learned a lot of really interesting stuff that I'd be happy to chat with people about over coffee sometime. But uh, you know, I do. I tend to. I try to value my readers' time when I write a book. So instead of like going off on a lot of the sides that aren't really the focus, I only try. I try books only like 180 pages with footnotes, and I try to really focus on uh, my thesis about modern racial classification. Another question. So what do we do about this? Um, can the government be forbidden from collecting such statistics or um, is, should they, the categories be brought down more narrowly and fragmented to the point where um, they're not used in the same way as much anymore? Or I suppose what else? I mean, a quick reaction is just, you know, the, obviously things in government always move slowly, incrementally, step by step. Certainly the Supreme Court does in terms of changing precedent. So probably wouldn't happen overnight in a sort of a sweeping way. But at least I think once you've started discussing the ideas that Professor Bernstein has put forth and just raising those issues, whether it's as a litigator or in court decisions or in government agencies, you know, maybe step-by-step step, kind of in a pragmatic way, people start figuring out, you know, what are places where maybe these policies don't make as much sense anymore. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, France, for example, is the common example of a country that absolutely forbids the government from using any kind of ethnic or racial classification. And indeed, there's a strong social norm against it also. But uh, I don't think we're ready to move to that system because enforcement of certain civil rights, even if you're not a big fan of using statistical analysis and like employment discrimination and so forth, certain things like voting rights, it's hard to see how they could be, how the Voting Rights Act could be enforced if you aren't, can't keep track of who's actually voting or not. If there's some small town in Texas that's suppressing like Mexican American vote, if you're not checking on how many Mexican Americans are voting, how would you ever know? So I don't think we're going to do that. But what I say in the book is to the extent we, we feel the need to continue using racial classifications, we need to think about what the, what are the ends we have in mind and at least tailor the classifications to that end. So in the medical fields, I've already said, I don't think you should be using them at all, or at best, extremely narrowly when there's no good genetic substitute and you have some reason to believe that there's a racial um, problem that matches our classifications, but I think this would be very rare. I think in social science research or for diversity purposes, the classifications are simply not at all sufficiently finely tuned. If you're doing social science, I mean, I, I can't read a newspaper the same way I used to. I'll read about, well, during the pandemic, the rate of Hispanic children passing the as the uh, the math tests in, in the United States in sixth grade or have gone down by X amount. I was like, well, it's very nice. But is that true of Cuban Americans in Miami? Is it true of Puerto Ricans who recently moved to Central Florida? Is it true of uh, rural uh, Texan Me uh, Mexican Americans? The same as it's true of like urban Port Colombians in New York. I mean, the you know, it's just lumping all these statistics together may give you a very general sense. And because Mexican-Americans are still over 60%, I think you generally assume that applies overall to the Mexican-American population, but doesn't tell you anything about specific subgroups and really isn't very useful uh, social science data. For discrimination statistical collection, which is what the classifications were originally meant for, they're far from perfect, but they may be good enough uh, for uh, just keeping track of people. Um, if you're trying to redress historical discrimination by the government, it's a little weird that at least in the government contracting uh, case, we count people who are 
post-1965 immigrants and their children and grandchildren, even though they grew up in an era with civil rights, not saying there's no discrimination, but an era with civil rights laws, even with affirmative action, but we don't include people whose ancestors were white ethnics who suffered discrimination, and we include them to the same degree we include like residents of American Indian reservations and descendants of slaves and sharecroppers and so forth. So one thing I propose at the end of the book is that if we do feel the need to redress the harm suffered by African-Americans and Native Americans, especially those who live on reservations, uh, through affirmative action, we should do it on a non-racial basis. We should say, if you live on an American Indian reservation, we can assume that you've suffered the effects of, uh, of disenfranchisement and discrimination and provide that as a rationale. The Supreme Court has suggested that that sort of thing will be a political, not a racial classification. Similarly, dissent from American slaves would exclude, you know, say Barack Obama, uh, uh, because his, he, he was not, his, you know, he had one white parent, one parent who was sort of some sort of royalty in, in Kenya, I guess, uh, would not include someone, you know, the ambassador from Nigeria's son who went to high school here, decided to stay and become a citizen. Uh, I didn't know this before I wrote the book. I discovered that 10% of the African American population, uh, was born abroad. So if you include them and their children and their grandchildren, there's actually a substantial percentage of the African-American population who are actually immigrants and their children and grandchildren. And they uh, dominate admissions at places like Harvard for people who are admitted under the African-American classification. And if we're trying to redress historical wrongs, that's not really the group that we should be primarily aiming at. And if you did it by descent from slaves, again, as opposed to what your race is, uh, that would arguably be a political rather than racial classification. All right. Well, thank you, Professor Bernstein. I could talk about this, uh, these issues with you all day, but I think our time is up. Um, the book, again, is Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. It just came out this summer. And so this is really a, a great achievement and contribution uh, to the discussion that I think you know, certainly in the legal profession hasn't really been addressed enough. And so I, I look forward to seeing you know, how courts maybe start incorporating some of these ideas and the research that you've put forward. Thank you, Corey. And uh, thanks everyone who tuned in. Well, on behalf of the Federal Society, I would like to thank Corey and Professor Bernstein for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, for joining us and participating, especially with those great questions. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, please keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other programming. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.